Thanks, everyone. I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not, be con- do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one of the deeds conducted yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are the believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience, the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Thank you, Carrie. You were getting a little feedback there. Must be the snow outside, right? You know, the snow's not bad. We uh, have to admit uh, my driving skills could be uh, improved. We, uh, we did hit a ditch coming over, but we are fine, as you can tell. <laughs> Though uh, you can't pray for my marriage and my driving abilities. That's, uh, you know, that's definitely an area of, of concern. Hey, I want to mention something uh, more important than the snow. We like to celebrate what's going on in the life of the people in our body. And so Ryan made it today. I know Katie is still with uh, Wesley. If you haven't heard the news, Wesley Graham Rogers was born on January 15th, 2018 to Ryan and uh, Katie Rogers. And so guys... We are excited for you and look forward to meeting uh, Wesley when uh, the right time arrives. Yeah, good to see you. Yeah, so again, uh, good morning. Welcome to Bergen Park. We're glad that uh, you're here today. If you want to grab a Bible, uh, please do. If you want to turn it on, that's okay. And let me make a great announcement this morning. It is going to be a great announcement. We're going to have Pew Bibles real soon. They're coming in. There's a few donations that were made towards that, and you're going to find them in Uh, The seat's in front of you, so when I say that, you're going to have a place to go. Now, I encourage you to bring your own Bible. It's good to be familiar with the Word of God and familiar with your Bible as you get into it. You know, if we're going to be the people of God, we've got to listen to the voice of God. If we're going to be the people of God in a community like Evergreen, to love like God, to serve like God, and then for us together in this community, and certainly when... It's such a small gathering to be the body of Christ. We have to listen to the voice of God. And I think the reality is, at least in my life, there's a lot of voices I listen to. 
And if I have to be honest, if I evaluate some of those voices and kind of the direction that they're going to take me, they're not going to take me towards uh, loving my enemy. They're not going to take me towards forgiving those who harm me. They're not going to take me in a direction that's going to glorify God. Rather, a lot of the voices I listen to in the world will take me in a direction that's going to glorify me. It may get what I want out of life. I may, in some ways, think I'm going to be happier because I'll get what I think I need. But the voices I listen to don't cause me to sacrifice love and serve as God wants me to sacrifice love and serve. And so as we get into the Word of God in 1 Peter, we get into it because what we need is to hear from the Lord and not from me. You with me? We need to hear from what God is saying to us. And in 1 Peter, what we're looking at is a community of people who are marginalized in the culture in which they live. The church in uh, the first century was not accepted by the culture. And in fact, the church wasn't trying to be accepted by the culture. Instead, what they found is many people in the culture would look at the church and say, you know, these people are odd. Uh, And actually, in some ways, they would see us as strange in the practices that we have. They'd see us strange in the way we deal with money. I think in our culture, we can admit that people say the way to approach money is to get all you can. You know, the one with the most toys at the end is going to win. But see, the church wasn't like that. Instead of getting all they can, those who were once getting all they can started giving all they could. To the extent that in the early church in the first and second century, it was the Christians who stood behind, stood behind. When plagues came and cities were ravaged, families would leave loved ones behind, and yet it was the early church that stayed and sacrificed and served, and what happened is this small band of Christians, over time, because of their conduct, began to attract a greater and a greater following because people couldn't argue with the love and the sacrifice and the service that they saw from these people who followed a crucified man named Jesus Christ. And so as we get into First Peter, what we're looking at is what does it look like for us today in 2018, maybe to live... In the community in which we live, a community we may love, and obviously an area that is incredibly beautiful, but to do that in a way that sets our heart not on the things we could get from people, but rather the things that God has given us, that we might reflect who God is in the world, that we are truly exiles in hope. And so if you want to grab your Bible, jump in. In verse 13, he starts off, and he'll say a word that's incredibly important for us. He says the word, therefore. And of course, when you see the word therefore, you should ask, what is it there for? Because <laughs> see, what he's going to tell us is that if we're walking through adversity and suffering in life, there's one thing we need. And in verses 3 through 12, he's telling us what God has done for us. That this is why we can trust God. If you go through adversity and you're trusting in God and you're turning to him for comfort or direction or guidance, in verses 3 through 12, he tells us why we can trust God. And what's amazing and in that passage is three times, I think it's in verse 2, you see it again in verse 3, and then again in verse 17, he calls God Father. The reason we can trust God, and then in verse 14, he calls us children, that we can trust God because God is our Father. We are his children. And what has he done for us? He's given us mercy. He's given us a new birth, meaning the life of God has come in and made me alive to God I now have not a dead hope, not a hope that I have to generate on my own, but rather he calls it a living hope. And then finally he says we have an inheritance that can't perish. It's not going to pass away. It's not going to fade. It's not something you can lose. Rather, it's something that God is 
holding on to and protecting us in until the time we receive it. This is what God's done for us. Now, what's going to happen in verse 13 all the way to chapter 2, verse 3, he's going to say, based on what God has done, how should we now live? That if we've really received these things from God, listen, we're the ones in this culture who are claiming to know God, not the culture. We're the ones in this culture that are claiming to experience the love of God. Well, if that's the claim that we make as the church, how do we live in a culture that may be hostile to what we believe? How do we live in a way that's hostile to what we believe and then maybe see us as odd or strange, maybe in some ways push against the church or cause us to feel as if we're being rejected? How do we respond in a way that honors God and doesn't simply just fall back into ourselves? He's going to say four things in this passage. On the one hand, we have to set our hope. He's going to tell us we've got to set our hope on the grace that is to come. Second, he's going to tell us in verse 16, we've got to be holy as God is holy. Third, he's going to tell us not only we've got to set our minds on the hope, we have to set our heart, our affections, our desires on the person of God. And then finally, he's going to tell us in verses 21 all the way down to uh, chapter 2, verse 3, that we have to love one another as God has loved us. Four things. We're going to see three of those today. One, to set our minds on the hope that God's given us. Second, to be holy as God is holy. And then finally, to set our affections, to set our heart on God. Now, the one that stands out of all three of those commands, the one that I think the rest are anchored on is in verse 16. So watch and look at verse 16 with me. He says in verse 16, it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. See, what do we need to live in a world of suffering and pain and adversity? What Peter's going to say we need, is, I think, is counterintuitive. He's going to say what we need is holiness. Now, that seems really impractical, and I get it. I mean, really, in a world of suffering, in a world of harsh and difficulties and pain, what we need is holiness. I mean, you're going to bring that today? You're going to bring holiness to my suffering, to my pain, to living in a world of hostilities? Well, Peter says that what we need to face adversity is holiness, because see, holiness enables us to see things as they, as they are. Not to see things as we want them to be, or even to see things as we maybe interpret them to be, but rather what holiness allows us to do is to see people rightly. And because you see people and you see God rightly, you see yourself rightly, and you realize, hey, what am I after in this situation? Am I after what is going to glorify and honor God? It's going to draw people to Him? Or am I simply after what's going to make me comfortable? And so he's going to say what we need in a world that is hostile towards Christ is holiness. Now, here's the question. What is holiness? And he says again, be holy, not simply out of your own energy, but because I am holy. Now, in the Old Testament, the word holiness is this word kadosh. And it simply means to be set apart. It means something that has been placed aside, something set apart that is alone for a specific purpose. And so God is holy, and, and the reason God is holy is because God is set apart. Another way to think about it is that God is off the chart. That sometimes if you think about the character of God, what describes the God of the Bible? Some people may say, you know, God is love, and that's true. In 1 John, it says God is love. Uh, you may think that the character of God and the essence of God is that God is powerful. God's created all things. He's made all things, and that's true. And yet what the Bible says above all things, 
is that God is holy. That God is loving and God is powerful, but realize the love of God is a holy love. The power of God is a holy power. The wisdom of God is a holy wisdom, meaning the character of God is off the charts. It's a love, but it's a love off the charts. It's not a love that we commonly see in life. You with me? It's not a love that you expect to find from someone else. Rather, it's the kind of love that when you encounter it, you say, wow, this is something incredibly different. It's shocking. It's the grace of God. It's a wisdom, and yet it's not just an ordinary wisdom. It's not just a wow, isn't he intelligent? But rather, it's the kind of wisdom that when it penetrates the heart, you suddenly realize that you see life in a totally different way than you've ever seen it before. And instead of just trusting in your own wisdom, as the proverb said, you start leaning not on your own understanding, but you start leaning on God's wisdom. And in leaning on His wisdom, it makes your path straight. Not because all the obstacles are gone, but rather God's wisdom makes your path straight because you can see things. You can see the road ahead of you. I know as I was driving in today, I couldn't see the road. And I kind of like, at least up here, the road, the lines don't matter, I guess, when it's snowing. Is that right? <laughs> Good. Because they didn't matter when I drove. Because you can't see the path, but see, when the wisdom of God comes in, in some ways it's like a plow. We can finally see the path in front of us. We can see what's ahead. And so the wisdom of God is a holy wisdom. His, his thoughts are above our thoughts, and His ways are above our ways. For God to be holy means He is off the charts. Now, what does that mean for us? Let me bring it down just a little bit. You know, when I take my dog to the vet, my dog does not know the difference between pain and compassion. My dogs don't understand that when the, the veterinarian is giving them a shot or, or when something's going on, that dog does not understand the difference between mercy and simply suffering. Because, see, his wisdom is below my wisdom. My wisdom in his eyes is a holy wisdom. It's off the charts. That I can recognize that there are times where pain actually is an act of kindness. Pain is an act of mercy. That what they're receiving in that moment from the vet is the greatest care they could receive. I'm watching out for their best interest. But from their vantage point, all it seems like is pain. And so likewise, when we encounter suffering and pain in life, if God is holy, there's going to be times where His wisdom doesn't match our experience. There's going to be times where you're going to question God and say, God, if you're good, how could you allow this to happen to me? Just like my dog says to me, how can you allow this to happen. And yet if God's ways are above our ways, if He is holy, if His wisdom is above our wisdom, if His love is above our love, there are going to be times, just like a child and a parent, where we, we say to our Father, why would you allow this to happen? And yet because He is our Father, and because He is a self-sacrificing Father, He says to us, do not be afraid. Trust me. Now why can we trust Him? Again, that's where we have to go back to verses 3 through 12. If you're struggling to trust God, you've got to realize what He's done for you. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That this is the love of God. That God, instead of giving us what we deserve, gave us mercy. He's given us a new life, a new birth, a new inheritance, a new community. God has been faithful to us. And if we begin to trust Him, this is the life that we're going to start to live, is a life that He calls holy. Now that, that phrase, be holy as I am holy, or as it is written... He says, you shall be holy for I am holy comes from your favorite book in the Bible, right? I'm sure it's where you spend most of your devotional time. 
It's a riveting book called the book of Leviticus. It's not many sermon series that go through the book of Leviticus. But the book of Leviticus, more than any other book in the Old and New Testament, talks about the holiness of God. That what it's setting up through all those laws is to show us how off the charts God is. And the purpose of those laws is to show us what it requires for us to enter into the presence of one who is holy. That you can't just come lightly. You know, we say, come as you are. Well, that's because of grace. But see, in the Old Testament, we came as we were, which meant we had to come through the law. We came through the law, and it wasn't that the law somehow cleansed us or somehow the law made us right before God, because see, at the end, even if you did everything right through the law, you know, at the end, what you had to do was to sacrifice, meaning that the law realized it can't make us holy. Only a sacrifice can make us holy. And so in the book of Leviticus, it shows us what it means to be holy. But not only does it say God is holy, what you'll find which is really interesting, it will say objects are holy. That God is holy, people are holy, and yet objects are also holy. So in Leviticus, you'll see this in your handout, chapter 27, verse 30, it says this. It says, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. Now a tithe means a tenth. So if there's a farmer in the field, he doesn't have... Uh, liquid assets, rather what he has is what he produces. And so he would give 10% of that which he produced. And so whether it's the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, he says it's the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. Which means, here's the definition of holiness, as the verse continues, it is holy. Now, what is holiness? It means it belongs to the Lord. Now, when you give a percentage of your income to the kingdom of God through the church, it's not like that income suddenly when it hits that box changes its substance because it's holy. In the one hand, it's holy not because it becomes something else. It's still money. But now when it goes into that box, it's fully devoted to the Lord, and that's what holiness is. It's not a matter of discipline. It's a matter of identity. Holiness, before it's what we do, it's who we are. And if we do not see ourselves as set apart for a noble pur purpose... If we don't see ourselves as one that God has pulled out of the world to serve Him, to represent Him, we won't understand what holiness is. Because to be holy means that God has set us apart to make much of who He is. We're holy because we belong to Him. And Paul captures this. You'll see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He says it this way. He says, You are not your own, but you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. We are no longer our own. We were bought with a price. The result means I am set apart for God, and therefore my life should represent who I am. Now, this is my connection point for that. When I was a young man, I got into a lot of trouble. So I couldn't answer the greeting question this morning because my son was sitting right next to me, and he says, Dad, what was the worst thing you've ever done? I said, son, I am not going to tell you right now, but there will be a time where your father's sinfulness will be disclosed. But my father would say to me as a young man, you know, 14, 15, I'd go out, maybe with a young girl, he would remind me, he said, when you walk out that door, remember you were always a freeman. No matter what you do, no matter where you are, you represent me. 
And so if you represent me, what you do reflects on who I am. That my identity as my father's son always has an impact on my father. And my behavior reflects who my father is. Well, that same connection works when God has set you apart. When through Christ you're now a child of God, what he's saying is be who you are. I've rescued you and set you apart to be holy. Now live a life that reflects the Father to whom you belong. Be distinctive because I'm distinctive. Be different, not to be different, but because that's who I am. And see, when the wisdom and the character and the love of God comes into the heart, what starts to happen like the snowplow is you start to see a different path in life. That you realize what it what enables us to overcome adversity and suffering is not the removal of the struggles we have, though we would love that to happen. No, rather, what, what enables us to go through suffering in life is seeing things rightly, knowing that God is our Father, He loves us, knowing my identity is one set apart for Him, and now I can engage the world in a way that I was created to engage the world. I was created to be holy. And so Peter goes on, and if you'll pick it up in verse 18 of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, knowing that you were ransomed. And I love how he describes it from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. See, that's what my father gave me. That's what all of our fathers have passed on. Now, what are the feudal ways? The feudal ways that have been passed on is, hey, this is how you save yourself. The wisdom of the world says, if you do this, you will be saved. If you look like this, that's salvation. If you find a man, that man finds you attractive, you're going to find nirvana. Or likewise for a man, finding a woman, she finds you attractive. In our culture, that's called salvation in many ways. What are we looking to to make myself right? Well, if I'm looking to something to make myself right, simply what the New Testament does is instead of just right, it adds an E-O-U-S, it's righteous. That when you're righteous, it's because someone has declared you to be okay. And whether it's money that declares us to be okay, whether it's the house that we live, the job that we have, the relationships that we have, the person we're married to, what I feel like, how I live, all of these things are a false righteousness that we run to. And see, in our cultures, what happens is our culture passes down to us a futile way of life, meaning if you get this, you will be saved. You see, the challenge in the Christian life is not just simply obedience. The challenge in the Christian life is to trust our Savior. You with me? Stop running to things that can't save you. That's futility. I mean, how many times do you say that to your child? Hey, that path isn't going to work out. And what do they do? Well, they want to try it out, right? You've got to try it a few times. You know, test that curve with the snow on it. See what's going to happen. I, I know you say we've got to slow down, but hey, I want to try it at my speed. And what happens is futility. You've got to get another car. Higher insurance. But see, what, what he's saying here is this is what the world passes on. It says this is how you can be right. This is how you can be saved. But notice what he says. But these are perishable things, such as silver or gold. But then he says, but rather we have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The reason we are set aside as holy is because of what Christ has done. He has made us holy as God is holy. Now, what we're going to discover is how do we actually live that out? And so what I want to do is jump back to verse 13, and we're going to say two main ways today 
that we can actually live out that identity as holy in a world that may be hostile to the behavior or may be hostile to the beliefs that we have? And so what does obedience look like? Well, first of all, jump back in verse 13, and he says again, therefore, because of what God has done, this is how we live. He says, prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now notice he says, set your mind. And to be sober, uh, be sober-minded means to have a clear mind as opposed to one who is drunk. And if you've seen one who is drunk, it's not a real clear mind in the outcome of what he think, thinks will happen when he makes decisions. But rather to be clear-minded is to have your mind set on what is right, to set on our hope. That Christianity is not to simply trust blindly by faith in what God says. Christianity is not a blind faith. It's a very wide open faith because it's a thinking faith. When he says set your mind, what he's saying is think. Church, think. If God is your father, and as Paul says in Romans, if he, listen, if he who did not spare his own son, but gave his son up for us all, how will he not also with Jesus freely give you all things. Think. If God is really willing to send His Son, and when He says His Son, He says, my Son, my only Son, like Abraham did in the Old Testament, the one in whom His desire was set. If God was willing to sacrifice to that extent, why are we so afraid that He won't care for us in our hour of need? It's because we don't think. It's in some ways, it's because we do think, but instead of setting our heart on the hope of grace, did you notice that? He says, so now set your minds on the hope of grace that is to come. What you're doing in life is you're setting your mind on the hope of what you can get now. You know, if this works out, and how much do you play that out in your mind? You know, if this only works out, if my son only does this, or if my kids go in this direction, then I'll be happy. What you're doing is meditating. I don't know if you realize it, you're worshiping. That's what worship is. It's to set your mind on something to such an extent that your behavior follows. Are you with me in that? It's to set your mind on something to such an extent that your behavior has to follow because, see, now your heart's captivated. And if your heart's captivated by something, you have to fight to cause your behavior not to follow. And he's saying, hey, when you set your hope on grace, the grace that's to come, when that captivates the desires of your heart, what's going to happen is you don't have to manage sin. You just live for God. I don't know if that hits you in any way, but it hits me. You don't have to manage sin, but simply to live for God. I think a lot of the Christian life is a thing called sin management. Are you with me? Gosh, i got to stop it. And we focus so much on the things that we do wrong, don't we? We kind of set up barriers and buffers just like the Pharisees did. If the law was here, they were like 10 feet back. If that's the law, I'm going to set up 10 laws in front of that law so I don't break the law of God. And what happens is, is instead of focusing on the thing that will change you, you're focused on the thing you don't want to do, which means you're worshiping what you don't want to do. Are you with me? Why do I do the things I don't want to do? Because I'm constantly focused on what I don't want to do. Stop. Just stop it. And instead, don't focus on the things we shouldn't do, but rather, he says, focus on the grace and the hope that comes from God through Jesus Christ. Realize what he's given you. 
I love how 1 John captures this. In 1 John, John describes it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are now the children of God, meaning we have been set apart and adopted as God's family. And what we will be, be has not yet appeared, meaning we're not with God yet fully. But we know that when He appears, when Jesus comes, we shall be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. And then notice this, verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Listen to that. Everyone who hopes purifies himself. What is the pathway to an obedient life? It's not obedience. It's hope. Everyone who thus hopes purifies himself. You see the pattern? It's not so much about doing, it's about being and allowing who we are, what God thinks about us, to so saturate our hearts and minds that we want what God wants for us because we're grateful for what God has given us, that He's redeemed us and rescued us to reflect His character and His nature. And when I don't feel like doing that, the solution isn't just to run, though sometimes you've got to run. You with me? Sometimes you've got to run. Who's texting me right now? but rather to set our hope on the one who loves us. See, the motivation is what matters. What drives the life is the motivation. We've got to set our minds on things that are above. We've got to allow those things that God has done to saturate our minds and our thoughts, meaning we've got to be prepared. We've got to be ready. Now, second, not only we set our minds, meaning to allow what God has done to think it through, but rather, second, you've got to set your heart on who God is. And so if you jump down, he'll say this in verse 17, and he says, if you call on him, and notice the language that he uses to describe God as father. And then he says, a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now I'll tell you, fathers don't do that. Are you with me? Fathers don't judge impartially. Listen, if, if my kid's wrong and this kid's wrong, that kid's wrong. If my kid and that kid got in trouble, it was that kid's fault. Because fathers don't judge impartially. So what Peter is doing is putting a contradiction side by side. On the one hand, God is a judge that judges impartially, meaning we're in trouble. Because, see, he sees past what you do, and he sees the motives of the heart, which means I'm in trouble. But on the other hand, that judge who is impartial is our father. How's that possible? How can the judge who is impartial also be my father? Well, he says, because of that, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. And again, exile means that we live in a community that is not our home. Though we love the community of Evergreen, this isn't our final destination. Rather, what God has called us is to a life with Him. And therefore, we allow heaven to come down, as Jesus says. We pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven come down that I want to live according to the values of heaven while I'm on earth. I'm in exile. This land is not my home. The way you live in exile is by being in fear of God. Now, I know that's, in this culture, not a popular idea. Maybe you grew up Catholic or had some experiences, even not in a Catholic church, but a Protestant church, where the focus was about fear and judgment. And after every sin, they'd say, you're going to hell. You with me? You been in that church? No, just me? That's good. That's good. You're going to be saved from a lot. But fear does not mean just terror. It means awe. 
It means to be inspired by. Because what you're inspired by, listen, if you claim to fear God, you'll know it by your behavior. Because what you fear is always shows up in what you do. Because on the one hand, this morning, you know, we sang about the glory of God. We sang about coming to Him, and that when we come to Him, He loves us as we are. And because He loves us as we are through the love of Christ, we can change, because we can be honest. The song we sang said we have no shame. Because why do we have shame? Well, shame has to do with identity. When you feel shame, it's because you believe what you do and who you are are the same thing. I've been abused. Maybe you've been abused in the past by a parent or a loved one, and you may think I am broken. No, what somebody does to you does not equate to who you are. And shame wants to lie and says, what's happened to you and who you are are the same thing. No, it's not. Because see, in Christ, we're accepted because of what Jesus has done. We're loved not because we're pure or perfect. We're loved because He is perfect. And now God sees us as holy and blameless in His sight, which means we should be in awe of who God is. The challenge is we're setting our hopes on the wrong things. And though we sing about the awe of God and the glory of God on Sunday, when you arrive at work on Monday, there's another awe that may take control. It could be the awe of the client. Will the deal go through? Hey, that'll put you in fear. Now, fear meaning an awe, because if you get it, hey, this is a great day. This is an awesome day. I am in awe and wonder of what this person could do for me in my career. Maybe you're in awe of the person that employs you. It could be a boss, it could be an investor. You're in awe. Therefore, what happens is when things don't work out, let's be honest, doesn't it affect your behavior? When your coworker fails and you're the one that's in charge and you have to take responsibility for what somebody else does and you have to like to throw them under the bus, but you can't because it's your responsibility. How do you come home, church? Angry, frustrated. Why? Because what you're in awe of is going to dictate your behavior. We know this in life. And so what is he saying? Be sober-minded. Set your hope that when you find yourself in this situation where you're in awe of something or there's something that's controlling your heart, you've got to say, wait a minute, you're not my Lord. You're not my God. You can't save me. You can't give me hope. You can't give me a new life. You're a good thing. Money's a great thing. Employment's a great thing. Accomplishment is a tremendous thing, but it cannot be my Savior and it cannot be my Lord. That's why later on Peter's going to say, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be troubled. Listen, do not fear what they fear. Do not be troubled. Instead, the solution is set apart Christ as Lord. That's not just intellectual. That's emotional. Because when you have a Lord in your life and you fail it, you'll be in fear. And if that Lord is money and you fail it, money will never hug you when you fail it. It'll only crush you. If your Lord is your job or your career, it's your accomplishments, and you fail your accomplishments, those accomplishments will never give you grace. They'll never die for you. They'll never sacrifice for you. You know all they will do, those lords will do? Jason, you don't measure up. And I don't know about you, but maybe 10, 15 years ago when I felt that, I used to say, you're right, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to work more. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to become more a slave to the law and to the Lord that I'm worshiping. 
than I have ever been before. Because see, the more you try harder, the more you say, I can save myself. I can save myself. But see, what he's saying here is when we fear God, what we're recognizing is we're allowing the reality of who God is to start to change us. Because see, in verse 19, here's, as I conclude, this is where it all This is where it all changes. Notice that word. It's just one simple word, but. That before this point, he's been describing what holiness is. Now he describes how holiness works. He says, but set apart, but with the precious blood of Christ. You are not ransomed with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. That of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. Now, through him, meaning through Jesus, we believe in God. And here's where our foundation is, because Jesus has been raised from the dead and gave glory to God. So now our faith and our hope are in God. What's he saying? There is something worth setting our hearts on, and it's called precious. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ. That in this world, there's a lot of things we run to as precious. And this is where the change has to happen. You know, the degree to which we run to other things, we have to recognize that our sin has cost Jesus everything. Our sin, our rebellion, and and seeking after things that we thought could save us. And for many of us, maybe we've already gone to that place and we know that it couldn't save us. We've experienced the broken marriages. We've experienced broken finances. We've experienced broken hope. We've experienced broken families because we've run after the wrong things. And so we... We know we need redemption, right? We know we need salvation. We know we need to run to Jesus. But in many things in life, we just haven't gotten there yet. And we still think the solution is out there. If I just get, if I just get. But realize what he's saying is it's not. It's not worth your life. It's not precious. And see, it's only to the degree we realize what it costs Jesus to bring us to the Father. It's only to that degree that we will start setting our heart on who he is. It's only to the degree we recognize what Christ has done for us that we'll start to live for Him. Why? Because you'll be in awe. You'll be in wonder. You'll start to say things like, oh, you with me? One of the best words in the Hebrew language is, oh. It's not intellectual, it's wow. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that you should be called a child of God. And listen to what John says. And that is what we are. That's awe. That's a mind that's captivated by what God has done. And see, that's a mind that now sinks into a heart that our affections begin to be captivated by who God is and what he's done. And listen, it leads to a new life. If that's the life we want to live, we've got to set our heart, we've got to allow our mind, we've got to allow our emotions to be captivated by Christ. And then finally, listen, we've got to be a community that does that for each other. Because when I'm in fear of the things in my life, don't come to me and say, Jason, stop it. It doesn't work. You know what you've got to do? You got to, through your own passion of worship, through your life, show me that Jesus is better. Hey, listen, Jason, God is great. You don't have to be in control. God is gracious. You do not have to fear others. God is glorious. 
he will meet your needs. You with me, church? We're a community set apart. This isn't a holy life. It's a holy community that lives according to who we are, and we need each other for that. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that though I don't feel often set apart, you say in Ephesians that we are holy and we are blameless in your sight. Father, I pray in Jesus' name you'd help us to receive that by faith today. But through the power of the Spirit, Father, you call us holy and blameless. And yet, Father, we know that we in many ways step outside your glory. We, we fall into temptation. We, we don't even want to admit often the ways that we, we break your heart. And yet, Father, you have set your love and affections on us. And you've sent your Son who was set apart as, as the Son of God. And yet he left the comfort of the Father. He was cast out so that those of us who should have been cast out can be brought in. Father, I pray this morning the reality of the fact that we have been brought in, set apart for you. Lord, would that stir our heart? And this week, Father, would that reality of the truth of the passion of the gospel stir us to loving you more? And Father, because of that, to living in a way that honors you. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond and worship.